Let me invite you to stand for our scripture reading. It's from Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and I just want to welcome you here if you're visiting with us. We're in a series in Romans, and we come to chapter 6 this morning. Last week, you saw a comparison between the way of Adam and the way of Christ, and in that comparison, verse 17 of chapter 5, there is this abundant grace, an abundant free grace given to us that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There is so much grace, in fact. We might be tempted to think, well, I can have my grace and I can have my sin too. And that would not be Christianity and that's the point that's made here in Romans 6, but as well what is encouraged is it is an argument from identity. You know, identity is so important, and it seems our society is pretty confused about identity, isn't it? And so we're going to look at the Christian's identity and how the gospel leads us not to license, but to holy living. So let's look together. It's Romans 6, and I'll read verses 1 through 5. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like this. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how thankful we are that indeed those of us who belong to Christ have this assurance of the resurrection. We thank you for our union with Christ, that we are made one with him in terms of our faith and his righteousness and all the blessings that flow from this. Help us together to be solid on exactly what our identity is as Christians. And we pray that you would accomplish this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Unfortunately, one thing about living in Bernie that you may know about, maybe personally experienced, is getting your mail stolen. Getting your mail stolen. I'm not talking about your mail being misdelivered. That's a sermon for another time. I'm talking about your mail being stolen. You know what happens here in Bernie? People drive in and they steal your mail. And as you leave today, you're going to notice on the driveway, you'll see our, our mailbox is pretty stout here at Trinity. We don't want anything to go missing. And then I live just around the corner. We had to move our mailboxes off of Ammon Road, off the main road, and buy those secure mailboxes because it was such a problem. There's videos on social media, people catching people, stealing mail. And, and, you know, they're not after your magazines. <laughs> they are after your identity. Because they can take some of the confidential information in the mail that you receive, 
And they can impersonate you and they can steal your identity and open credit cards in your name because you probably have better credit than they do. And they can grab off and open bank accounts, float checks. They can do all manner of things by impersonating you. And then by the time you figure it out, it's really hard to convince a financial institution you are who you say you are. There is a kind of spiritual stealing of the identity that's happening in our time. We're told that we are most fundamentally whatever we feel. If I told you I read about somebody who self-identified as a tree, that would not even register to you, that that's unusual for the times that we're living in. A lot of people are confused about who they are. And the reality is, for a Christian, if you place your faith in Christ, if you're depending on Christ alone for your salvation, here's the reality about your identity. Who you are is about whose you are, who you belong to. And we see that come into full relief here in Romans 6. The identity issue is solved not by going and finding ourselves, It is an an identity that is not self-derived. It doesn't come from us, but it is an identity conveyed to us by faith. We are united to Christ. And so this is a passage about that doctrine called union with Christ. And the idea here is, is that by faith, what Christ has accomplished becomes ours. We're united to him in his victory, in his death, in his resurrection. And if that's news to you, that's okay. That's a doctrine that's not much talked about today in churches, union with Christ. But I would recommend to you there's a book-length treatment of this doctrine that's very accessible. It's called Union with Christ, and it's by Rankin-Wilborn. Rankin-Wilborn, Union with Christ. I recommend that to you. It's an exposition of the doctrine of union With Christ, because our identity, our union with Christ, empowers us to resist sin and to live for Jesus. So, your identity, who you are, enables you, empowers you to live for Jesus even in times like the ones we're living in. So, how is this Christian identity formed? How is it formed? How can we resist the world's attempts? to steal our identity, or to tell us who we are. Uh, The first, and there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along, the first thing you're going to see is that we are baptized into Christ. We are baptized into Christ. So the passage begins with two questions. What shall we say then? Verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I want to offer you this. That's a good question. Because if grace really is abounding... If the gospel really is such good news, if God forgives, there is this temptation to misunderstand grace and say, well, if God forgives, let me go out, sin some more, and get some more of this forgiveness or grace. It is a natural question that logically uh, Paul arrives at here in Romans, and he answers it. Look at verse 2, by no means. No, the one who belongs to Christ, who has had their identity transformed, 
would of course not think they could continue in sin. This doesn't make any sense. Because if you do belong to Christ, if you're united to Him, then all the blessings you have motivate you and encourage you to resist sin and to live for Jesus. Look at verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? There is nothing about our sin, nothing about sinful desires that is life-giving. And so we have died to that. That represents our past. We've been delivered from that power of sin. And so we are called to live for Christ. So look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is saying, and he's addressing the Roman Christians, is that their baptism points to how they have come into this new life. When we baptize Bennett, it is his, it represents his cleansing and his purification, because when you wash something, you sprinkle it with water, you let the water run over it, and that's what's pictured in baptism, and it is the entry point, the way that you come in to the Christian life is pointed to in that baptism, that he is part of this covenant community. You see what we do here at Trinity, and this is true of churches like ours that are Presbyterian, we baptize because we raise our children as if they belong to the faith rather than sort of waiting on the sidelines and later trying to convince them of the faith. We raise them as if they belong, depending on uh, in believing God in faith will work, that the spiritual reality pictured in baptism would be realized in their life through God's work. Let me offer you this. That's a lot better strategy than sitting on the sidelines as a parent. Does the world, let me ask you this, does the world sit on the sidelines and say, well, you know, let's wait until the child is 10 years old uh, to understand, and then we'll challenge? No, that's not what happens. And this is part of discipleship of that future generation. So in the case of infant baptism, it's a sign and seal of God's covenant promises of what we are declaring, where we are declaring life is found. And it's a faithful looking forward in hope that God will actualize what we do by faith. And so baptism points to this new beginning. And we're told here we are baptized, connected, united to Christ, baptized into Him. And if you, again, if this doctrine is new to you, union with Christ, look at all the places in the New Testament you see prepositions attached to Christ Jesus or the titles, you know, in, with, into. We see those here exhibited in this passage, and you'll find that a theme in the New Testament. So baptism has to do with entering into this new way of life such that sin, the old way, is something that we've all declared life isn't found there. There is a connection then what happens spiritually in our lives and what is pointed to in baptism. There's a connection there. 
You know, my dad told me the story one time of coming home from work, and he was he was having some repair done, uh, repair work done around the house. And he gets home from work, and he and he goes around the corner of the house near where the AC unit hooks up to the to the house, and the repairman is face down on the ground. And something had gone wrong. Something that had had happened, and so my dad goes over, and, and it looks like the gentleman had been digging or doing something, and he hadn't cut the power on the AC unit. He hadn't cut the power. So my dad grabbed him, and the shock from that, because he was connected still to the electricity, caused my dad to, to fall backwards and fortunately, my dad dragged this repairman off of whatever was causing the shock. And you see, that is what Christ has done for us. We were all face down in the hole, being controlled by this electricity. The repairman could not move himself off of what was causing the shock. He was, in a way, controlled by it. And so my dad had to grab him to move him and take on that electricity, as it were, and move him off of that. And this is what Christ has done for us. He has willingly come into this world, been connected to us, grabbed onto us, dragged us away from what was killing us, sin, and not giving us life, but instead bringing death into our life. Christ has done this for us. Why would we return to a life of sin? He who dragged us to safety is the one who has called us into a new way of life, a new way of relating to life, such that you and I can say, Sin is something that is not part of this new way that I'm called to. Think 2 Corinthians 5.21 here. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became so closely associated with our sin. He did not ontologically change into sin. But instead, he became so closely associated with that sin that he took it on. With, but he himself was holy without sin. He took that on, feeling the brunt and the full force of God's wrath at the cross. And the alienation and humility, uh, humiliation that happened to him throughout his life, all of it so that he could be connected to us. How can we then not battle against our sin. Our lives must be marked then by a gratitude and a thanksgiving that comes from being dragged to safety through salvation, but as well, not only thankfulness, not only gratitude, but a resistance to sin, a resistance to living in our old ways. Yes, we still struggle with sin. We will not be fully delivered from sin until we take our last breath here 
but we fight against that sin. I've, I've said before, sin, the influence and the vestiges of uh, our old ways stay with us. They influence us. It's like a oil stain on the, on the concrete or the parking lot. And you still see that, even though it's maybe faded or you power washed it and you tried to get it away, it's still there, but you have been delivered from the penalty and the power of that sin. We'll see next week, look over the page there at Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The gospel enables our resistance and engenders thanksgiving and gratitude in our hearts for being dragged to safety. Jesus has done this for us. So we're baptized into Christ Jesus, but we are also, and this is the second half of verse 3, we're also, what? Baptized into His death. Baptized into His death. All those baptized are baptized into his death. In other words, we are dead to sin, and the attractiveness of sin loses something to us. We still struggle, but we know that our nature has been renewed. And sinning is not consistent with who Christ made us, is making us into, the new life that he's called us to. This baptism into death speaks to some of the suffering that we undergo as we resist sin, as we refuse to live in our old way, and as we're delivered to that, from that. It's called the mortification of the flesh, the putting to death the sinful desires of our heart. This comes from Romans chapter 8. You can just skip a few pages there. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this speaks to the life-giving power of the gospel to change our sinful ways. So the mortification of the flesh, the putting to death the sinful desires of our hearts is the task of the Christian, not empowered by self-will or self-discipline, but empowered principally by the one who has dragged us to safety. Uh, you might think for a moment, you may be the kindest, nicest person in the world. You know, a fly comes in your kitchen. I mean, aren't the flies bad this year? The, a fly comes into the, the kitchen. Oh, I, I need to let it out so it can be free. I need to let it out so it can be free. Uh, oh, you know, armadillos, you want to come by and dig up my garden and deer. I have the best tasting shrubs all around. You might, oh, I have such a soft spot for the deer. This, this could all be true of you. But when it comes to sin, you need some grace-filled killer instinct. And you need to channel that. You need to find that. That is what Christ has given you. That you will not compromise. That you will not uh, declare a truce with sin. That instead you would battle against it because it is a spiritual life and death issue. 
Sometimes it is a physical life and death issue. John Owen, 17th century Puritan, uh, wrote a book, The Mortification of Sin, about this idea that we together are called to not make a truce with our sin, but instead to put it to death. And I'm going to read you, uh, let's see, I got four quotations from this book. Uh, And it's also, there's a modern version of it by Kelly Capig, uh, published as Overcoming Sin and Temptation, because when you write in the 17th century, you've got to translate English into English uh, so that we can understand. And so, listen to this perspective and how foreign it is to our ears in the modern church. John Owen, quote, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Another quote, set faith at work on Christ for the killing of thy sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and thou will die a conqueror. Yes, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. I don't know about you, I want that kind of Christianity. And I think it's missing in our modern age. Two more uh, quotes. The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And then last quote, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, John Owen's book. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bodies of his lusts. That's what I'm talking about, the killer instinct. Walking over the dead bodies of the temptations and sin that you and I face and struggle with. How can we live that kind of life? It's a life empowered by grace. It's not self-effort. It's that Jesus has transformed our life and we are new creation. And he has called us to root out sin, to confess it, to realize the power of our own self-deception. You know, we're, I know there's somebody listening, well, I'm not that bad. Ask the people that you live with what you're like to be around when you don't get your way. And begin that journey of confessing and mortifying, putting to death your sin. So you may be the kindest person in the world, wouldn't hurt a fly. But when it comes to your sin, we all are called to put it to death. It has no place in this new life that we're called to. So not only are we baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death, verse 3, and then verse 4, we're buried in Christ. Look at verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Ah, it's that newness of life. It's better than the American dream. It's better than the hill country dream. It's better than the Texas dream. This newness of life that we are called to. This burial in Christ speaks to the finality and the completion of Christ's work for us. 
that His work is not something that we add to. It is final and it is complete. Christ did not die so that we can stay in our sin. And notice here too in verse 4 this idea of burial. And sometimes people argue a mode of baptism based on this. They say you're buried with Christ so we need to immerse for baptism. But we would know this is not a passage about mode of baptism because burial in the ancient world was not going into the ground. Uh, as, as, in, as in going down, it was usually into. The burial was into. Think of the garden tomb where Jesus was buried. It was into, not down. And so we wouldn't argue that way on mode of baptism. And so the principal idea here is not mode of baptism, it's finality. Christ has done this. And the purpose of this is that we would walk in newness of life. Newness of life is what we're called to. I have a t-shirt, and it was given to me. The t-shirt was given to me. I'm being clear with that because it excuses a lot. And on the back of this t-shirt, it says this quote, success is never owned. It is rented and the rent is due every day. That's what the t-shirt says. Success is never owned. It is rented, and the rent is due every day. Now, now that may be, you may be like, oh yeah, I like that. And that's great. Well and good. Maybe that works for business. Maybe that works in your life. Of course, the idea is you got to put in the effort in order to succeed. Well, let me tell you this, that, that is sub-Christian. If you try to apply that to Christianity, that is sub-Christian. It is not Christianity. That's a works-based view that every day I need to put in my work as a Christian to have the blessings that God has given me. That's antithetical to this passage because this passage is telling us, no, the success belongs to Jesus and he conveys it to us once and for all in him. And you don't have to earn it. The reason why we live for Jesus is because he's already given us this success. Success beyond anything we could ask or imagine. He has already given us. And we don't have to pay the rent because Jesus paid it all at the cross. And it's because he paid it all at the cross that we give our lives to him, willingly give our lives to him. And so the burial in Christ speaks to that finality. One more point here to make. In verse 5, for if we are united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We are united with him and our resurrection is absolutely certain. The finality of burial points us toward the power and the promise of the resurrection. The weakest Christian will die a conqueror over this world, over their sin, and over everything this world has to offer. And what's our calling here then? Is to live like that's already true. Because it is. How many of us struggle against our sin thinking, well, this thing just has that power over me? 
The Bible tells us we've been delivered from that power, that dominion that sin has over us. To live like that is already true, is not pretending, it's not fooling ourselves. It's living consistent with the identity that Christ has conveyed to us by faith. We belong to Him. He is ours by faith. He has dragged us to safety. He has given us every success already in Him. We are united to Him in the righteousness, the perfect righteousness He has, has been given to us by faith. We're buried with Him, resurrected with Him. We always have hope. And we are so assured we know it will happen, the resurrection. So assured we know it will happen. It is our purpose to see those things lived out in our lives. God's abounding grace given to us that we might walk in newness of life and the hope of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection and one day our future resurrection. That's who we are. That's our identity. That's how we're called to live. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for the assurance and the promise that indeed we don't have to earn that which you have already given us. That we together can rest in the assurance of all the promises and the beauty of the grace that you've given us in the forgiveness we enjoy in Christ. We pray that with gratitude we might be motivated with the wonder of your love, we might together labor for your cause and your glory, that we would walk in holiness and be done with the sin that so easily entangles us. Give us hope in our struggle that we too might conquer in his name. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.